Can you believe it's week eight already? This morning we're looking at knowing the holy and righteous one. Jonathan Edwards said, a true love of God must begin with a delight in his holiness. And so that's what we're going to dig into this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning. God, our desire as we gather is to know you more. God, we know that is a gift from you that you would reveal yourself through the power of your spirit to us. So God, we pray that you would teach us more of yourself this morning. Help focus our attention upon these glorious attributes of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are at the Parish Church in Olney to look at what God did through John Newton after his conversion. John Newton's ship limped into an Irish port and he soon found himself back in England. In 1750 he realized his dream of marrying Mary Catlett. John Newton became the captain of a slave ship and made three journeys, each lasting about a year. He had not yet come to see the evils of the slave trade. In November of 1754, he had an epileptic seizure and never sailed again. He took the lucrative position of tide surveyor in Liverpool, and the job permitted Newton a certain amount of freedom, which he employed in traveling to hear famous ministers like George Whitfield, and setting about to seriously study the Bible in its original languages. He often rose at five to study for three hours before work. Newton began to cherish the hope that one day God might call him to preach the gospel. However, due to his contact with Whitfield and Wesley, he was suspected of being a Methodist, and the church officials repeatedly refused his application for ordination for the next six years. It wasn't until an influential friend intervened on his behalf that Newton was granted ordination in 1764 and became the minister here at Olney. As a preacher, he had a very clear goal to preach what I ought and to be what I preach. Newton got busy. He preached six times a week from this pulpit during a time when one sermon per week was normal for the Church of England. He visited three or four families daily and kept a careful record of their spiritual condition. He began a special meeting for children, which was attended by over 200 kids from the village. He also started a corporate prayer meeting, which he considered to be at the center of his ministry. The attendance at church tripled in these early days and a gallery had to be added to the building in order to hold the people. 
He was known for hospitality. And as he and Mary entertained guests throughout the year, they would often have no breaks for months. His home was an asylum for hurting people, including the famous poet William Cooper. John Newton and William Cooper wrote a hymnal together called the Olney Hymnal. He was an extremely busy pastor. He wrote in a letter, I have seldom one hour free from interruption, letters that must be answered, visitors that must be received, business that must be attended to. In spite of this, he labored happily here for 16 years. After Olney, John Newton became the minister here at the church of St. Mary Woolnoth in London. The Newtons were never able to have children. However, when his wife's two nieces were orphaned, John and Mary adopted them. The first was Eliza. She came to them as a 12-year-old dying of tuberculosis. Eliza was a true Christian, and John spent time with her every day, helping her walk with the Lord in the midst of her suffering. She died victoriously at the age of 14. The second niece was Betsy. She grew up in their family and helped John later in life when he was nearly blind. However, in 1801, she was put in the hospital for months for a mental illness. Every morning, in spite of failing eyesight, John Newton would have a friend walk him down to the hospital and position him near the windows. Newton would wave until his friend assured him that Betsy had seen him and waved back. Mary, John's wife, preceded him in death by 17 years. After her death, he published two volumes of his letters to her, dating back to the earliest days of their marriage. They reveal Newton's humor and tenderness as he spiritually guided his wife. Newton's influence continued to spread. He met with younger evangelical ministers, helped found the Church Missionary Society and the British and Foreign Bible Society. He influenced young missionaries like the Baptist, William Carey. John was also a prolific writer. His works are still published today in a six-volume set totaling 3,800 pages. He even helped to end slavery through his influence on a young politician named William Wilberforce. Wilberforce was converted under Newton's preaching, and John encouraged him to battle against slavery as a member of Parliament. Newton also published a book in which he recorded his own first-hand knowledge of the atrocities of the slave trade. This helped sway public opinion and slavery was outlawed in the British Empire in February of 1806. I want to say a word about his most famous hymn, Amazing Grace. It was composed at the end of 1772 as he prepared his New Year's Day sermon. He was reviewing his spiritual journals from the preceding decade, and being struck by the grace of God, he took up his pen and wrote the hymn to go along with that sermon. John Newton never quit being amazed at the grace of God. Toward the end of his life, he told a friend, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. John Newton died at the age of 82. This week, you have an opportunity to search the Scripture and gain a clearer understanding of God so that you too might remember that you are a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. This week you've studied the holiness of God. 
the fact that he is essentially separated from every other thing. It's a categorical separation. There are two categories. There is the uncreated God, and then there is all else, the creation. It is an infinite separation between these two categories, and it is an immutable, unchangeable separation. God is as separate from all else as he ever was and ever will be. He's not just essentially separate. He is also morally separate from all that is polluted or imperfect. That means that God cannot sin. God cannot tempt with sin. God cannot look on sin with favor in any circumstance. There is an infinite distance between God and all that is morally impure. There is an unchangeable separation from God and all that is impure. Now, we've heard this all our lives. If we are Christians, we have no argument with this statement. But this is a fundamental fact that often comes under attack when our life is exposed to suffering. And then God's unstainable character is assailed by doubts. And Christians are not immune to that struggle. We see that in the life of Job. Job was a godly man, yet he was allowed to suffer greatly, many sorrows. And I want us to look at what he says about suffering, but not just about suffering, but about sin and about a holy God. In Job chapter 9, we find that Job is responding to his friends. They've been discussing this whole issue. Job and his friends are agreed that God was holy. They are agreed that God, as a general rule, blesses the righteous and curses the wicked. But they are disagreed on why God is allowing Job to suffer. In the previous chapter, Job chapter 8, Bildad insinuates that Job is a hypocrite. And the logic goes something like this. God punishes the wicked and God blesses the righteous. God is punishing Job. Therefore, Job must not be as godly as he appears. There must be some hidden sin. And Bildad describes the life of a hypocrite. He says the life of a hypocrite is like a weed that grows alongside a marshland. It grows up faster than other plants. It grows faster than an oak. But if you watch it, when there's a dry spell, it's the first to wither up and die. So, Bildad insinuates, people who pretend to love God, hypocrites, may seem to flourish more quickly than others, but if you watch them over time, when difficulties come, they will not be able to endure, and their religion will wither. Of course, Christ talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. There are two houses. One house is built on the foundation of obedience, a person who hears the word of God and does it, responds. And one is built on the sand of an unresponsive life. And when a storm comes, same storm, one house stands and the other falls. So it's always good to ask ourselves, which house are we? Are you like the reed or the weed that grows up alongside the wetland that seems to flourish and everyone praises you? But when hard times come, you turn your back on Christ. Job's response to Bildad's statements is very enlightening. First, he says, yes, I agree. I have not lived a wicked life, Job implies. And yet, how can any man 
be in the right with God. And what follows in chapter 9 then is a discussion. Now the reason they're having the discussion is the whole issue of suffering. But the overarching issue, the foundational issue, the issue that is the backdrop of all this discussion is the problem of sin. Job's question, how can anyone be in the right with God? Or how can any human be right with a holy God? Now that's a question that ought to occupy all of our thoughts. Of course, you can deny that there's a problem. You can say that humanity is evolving. And, and I don't believe we have a moral, fundamental issue here. Or you can attempt to justify yourself. That is, to make yourself right with God. Or at least to make yourself less wrong with God. But can you really do that in the sight of a holy God? Jonathan Edwards, the early American preacher, said that every person has some scheme for escaping the judgment. So it would be wise to ask ourselves, is the scheme that you have really worth the hope that you're placing in it? In Job chapter 9, Job gives a list of ineffective methods for making ourselves right with God or for justifying ourselves before a holy God. Now, the benefit of this chapter for us today is that these ineffective methods are the same ones that we're tempted toward now. But there is a greater benefit because at the end of the chapter, when Job despairs of ever making himself right with God, he expresses his deepest desire, and in that desire, we find the only hope for Job to be righteous, and we find the only hope for our being righteous with God. Well, let's look at this passage. One of the things we see is in verse 4 through verse 12, Job describes the God that we're dealing with. It's very easy to only think when we're thinking about our sin problem, to only think about the sins, what we've been doing, and to forget the who, who we're sinning against. Listen to what Job says. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him? without harm, right? Who has ever defied God and come out unscathed? Then he describes God. It is God who removes the mountains, they know not how, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea, who makes the bear Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south who does great things unfathomable and wondrous works without number. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, and God certainly snatched away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? Have you got this clearly in your mind? Do you forget who it is you're contending with? Who it is you're hoping to place your arguments before? Who it is you're hoping to be right with or to justify yourself in front of? You are attempting, in essence, to win an argument with the Most High. Now Job goes on to list a number of popular but false hopes for self-justification. Let me point out a few in this passage. First, 
we find that no person will be right with a holy God by trying to answer God's questions. In verse 3 of this chapter, we read, If anyone wished to dispute with him, with God, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. God is the witness against you in this court. God is the prosecuting attorney. God is the judge. God is the jury. God is the executioner. How will you present your case and win in this court? We often ask people this question. What would you say if God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven at the end of life? But that really isn't going to happen, is it? In Romans 3, Paul says that the law silences all mankind before God. In other words, the law points out so clearly that we have no right, no right to be right with God, no right to think that God will let us off the hook, that we won't even try to come up with excuses. But do you really want to try to answer God? Job had a chance to answer God. In chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41, we find that God takes Job on two long walks, so to speak. And each walk contains a series of questions. Job has run his mouth. He said a lot about God. And now God is going to ask Job some questions. And Job is going to have to answer God instead of God answering Job. The end of the first round of questions is found in chapter 40. Listen to what Job says. Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. Then at the end of the second round of questions, in chapter 42, we read this. Job says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. What kind of questions did God ask Job? Well, let me give you one. Chapter 40, verse 2. God asked Job, Will the fault finder, that's Job, contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. How will you answer that question if you intend to be right with God by answering God's questions? If you want to justify yourself, you're basically saying, I, I don't think that God's way is the best way. I think that there's another way. I think God's rules are too strict. I think that he's too narrow when he says Christ is the only hope. Whatever you want to say to God, you're the fault finder. Will you contend with the Almighty? Will you reprove God? Or in verse 8 of that chapter, God asks this, Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Well, you need to answer that. You can't afford to go to court with this God with no answers. In Hosea 14, the prophet gives instructions to the people of Israel who have drifted far from God. And he's telling them how to return, how to repent. Listen to what he says. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. You think about it. You are about to meet with God if you want to justify yourself. You have lived as his enemy. You have offended the king. You have ignored the lawmaker. You are now before him as your judge. He holds your life on a thread of his patience and mercy. 
Do you really want to stroll into that courtroom unprepared with no words? Only a fool comes to that God without the right words. But the problem is there aren't any words sufficient. And we find that throughout the whole chapter. Go back to verse 3. If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. In a very simple picture here. If God asked you 1,000 questions accusing you of sin, just a thousand, you couldn't adequately answer him once. Out of a thousand accusing questions before this judge, you would not, one out of a thousand, be able to say, aha, at least, at least this time I was right, all right? You can't blame me for that. And God agreed. And in this situation, if you were able to answer God 999 times out of a thousand, and only one accusation sticks, you would still be guilty. And you would not be right with God. Do you remember James? James warns us that if we break the commands of God in any one place, we are guilty of them all because we have offended the lawgiver. Think. God has observed everything about you. He's numbered your steps. He's heard every word before it hits your tongue. He knows the truth about every circumstance in which you've chosen self over him. Every sin was accomplished in front of his face, Moses says. And God knows all possible excuses and lies and answers. So we come to verse 14 of this chapter. Job says, how then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. In other words, even if I could choose my words carefully and I felt I lived a good life, in the end, when it comes to me and God, I would have to cast myself on his mercy. Trying to win an argument with God, it's a dead end. Well, let's look at the, another false hope. You can't make yourself right with God because you are always forced to accuse yourself. How can you come before a judge and right in the middle of presenting your case, in a sense, you jump over and join the prosecuting attorney and attack yourself? Listen to verse 20. Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. Or in modern language, even if I feel that I've lived a good life, my own conscience would accuse me before God. Think of it. What's conscience? Conscience is an internal type of law. It's a whistleblower, isn't it? It tells you when you're doing something wrong. Have you always done what your conscience expected you to do? Have you always done all the good you knew to do? Have you always avoided all the bad that you know you should have avoided? Have you done the things that you've done with the right motive every time? With the right attitude, in the right way, with the right goal, without fail. It's very clear that no human has passed the standard of their own conscience. Now, if you fail the standard of your conscience, how will you pass God's standard? So Job says, even if I feel that I've lived a good life, my own mouth would accuse me. A third false hope. You'll never justify yourself because you don't really know yourself well enough. Verse 22, 
I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. Now, the Hebrew here is difficult to translate. Literally, it says this, I am guiltless, but I don't know myself. I am not guilty of horrendous outward sins. But still, Job says, I'm not innocent because I don't know myself thoroughly. The problem isn't that we don't know enough. The problem is that our hearts are deceitful. And what we do know about ourselves is a, is a, is a skewed picture. Listen to Jeremiah 17. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the answer comes, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God searches the heart, God tests the mind, and then God gives the correct response to your deeds. David in Psalm 19 says this, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me, God, of hidden faults. What are you going to do with guilt before this judge that you don't even know that you have? How will you prepare a case when you don't know all the charges? How will you fix yourself when there are faults that you can't see? There's no hope in making yourself right with God when you don't even know yourself. A fourth false hope. You don't live long enough to fix yourself. Listen to Job in verse 25 and 26. Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They slip by like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops on its prey. You see the pictures there? My days are passing by me, running past me like a swift runner, like a little boat on a stream passing me by, like an eagle swooping down on its prey. Sometimes we think that if God would just give me enough time, I could fix my life. So, in a sense, we say this, Lord, I, I don't have it all together yet, but if you'll just give me a couple of months, I'll get it together. You'll be proud of me. You'll find me acceptable. But can you ever be in the right with God, no matter how long he gives you? You don't have long enough. Ask yourself, are you really essentially any better without Christ? Are you any better today than you were 10 years ago? A better person? Less selfish? Less proud? Less bitter? More loving? More happy to take the lowest position to be overlooked? If you lived a thousand years, you couldn't make yourself right with God. And you don't have a thousand years. Like Job, you realize you're not going to live long enough to fix yourself. Fifth false hope. There is no real hope in having a good attitude. What about positive thinking? Making the best of a bad situation. It sounds noble, but that too is an empty hope. Verse 27. Though I say, I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my sad countenance and be cheerful. I am afraid of all my pains. I know that you will not acquit me. Life apart from the Creator, Paul describes as having no hope in this world. If you try to patch the deep sorrows of the soul, 
with this mask of happiness, you haven't fixed anything. If you say, well, I'll just forget my complaints and I'll put on a smile and I'll think happy thoughts, then like Job, you'll have to say, yet, at the end of the day, I'm still afraid of my pains and I know that God is not going to acquit me. A sixth empty hope. There is no hope in this religious resignation, which really is an unrepentant fatalism. Look at verse 29. I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? Now today we say it a little differently. We say it like this. Well, if we're all sinners and we know we can't fix ourselves, what's the use of even trying? We're totally depraved. We can't do anything good. Trying to obey God, that's just legalism. I'll just trust myself to God. There's an ungodly kind of resignation. It's really fatalism. You're not trusting yourself to the mercy of God. You're not responding to God in faith. You're not listening to what He says and coming to Him according to what He says, but instead you're just sitting back and kind of shrugging your shoulders. In Acts chapter 2, the conclusion of Peter's Pentecost sermon, we read this, and with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Get yourself rescued, Peter preaches. Yes, you can't rescue yourself, but you can get yourself to the one that does rescue. God commands every person, Be saved from your perverse generation. That fatalistic shoulder shrug. It's not trusting God. It won't make you right. A seventh false hope. You can't clean yourself up using the cleanest of water. Verse 30. If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye. So there you have it. Snow water and soap. Well, surely that'll do the... Surely that'll clean me up. Job says, yet you would plunge me into the pit and my own clothes would abhor me. No earthly soap can cleanse your soul. Jeremiah 2, we read this. God says to the Jews, although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord. How can you say, I am not defiled? Pick the best cleaner in religion and scrub as hard as you can and you will not end up clean with God. Think of the two best cleaners, the rules Not just any rules, not just any morality, God's morality. Take the biblical rules and try to use them to clean yourself up. And what you'll find is it's like a dye that you swallow and then you go and under the x-ray machine, all the disease shows up. You take God's rules and you try to fix yourself. It just shows you how bad you are. It will expose you, not cleanse you. The law is not designed to make you right with God. We'll take religion as a whole. Public worship, singing, prayer, reading your Bibles. Maybe that'll cleanse you. Do you remember Isaiah 1? God says this, I've had enough of your sacrifices. I take no pleasure in them. They are worthless. Your worship services are a burden to me. I hate them. I hide myself, he says, from your prayers and I won't listen to you. When you use religion as a cloak, for self-centeredness. When you use God to try to fix your problems, 
Instead of religion being about you giving yourself to God, religion is about you trying to use God. It's like dumping mud into the wash water. No matter how much you bathe, you just get dirtier. It's a very descriptive passage. Job says that his own clothes would abhor him. Job, at this point, is covered. His body is full of sores. And it's so nasty. It's like his clothes would complain to God. We don't want to be Job's clothing today. Look at him. Think of the spiritual application. Think of all that you've done, all that you've thought. Think of the things that you would never tell anybody about yourself. It doesn't matter how much religion you use, how much soap the preacher gives you, how long you scrub. Your clothes will abhor you. The eighth and final false hope is this. You can't make yourself right with God because you can't summon him to court. Verse 16, if I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. Verse 19, if it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? It's bad when you have a weak case and you have to go before the judge and present your weak case. And you're pretty sure you're not going to win. But it's worse when no matter how weak your case is, you can't even get access to the judge. You're just declared guilty. No access to court. God is the most high. How are you going to travel to him? How are you going to subpoena God and require that he shows up at some human court and answer for his actions? The hopes of offering excuses or arguments to justify ourselves. Well, there is no hope there because we don't have access to God. A criminal that's in a dungeon doesn't get to leave death row And go knock on the palace door and tell the king that the king owes him an explanation. He doesn't have access to the king. In verse 32, Job says it this way. God is not a man as I am that I may answer him that we may go to court together. Now that sets the stage for the only good news. Found in verse 33, 34 and verse 35. Job's final plea. Look at the wisdom of Job. If you could only ask for one thing from this God, what would you ask for? Job asks for an arbitrator, a mediator. He says in verse 33, there is no umpire, no mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him remove his rod from me. Let not the dread of him terrify me. Then he finishes, I am not like that in myself. Job knows the one hope for being right with God is a mediator. Wonderful picture here. Someone who can lay hands on both parties. A man, and yet a perfect man, so he's not part of the sin problem. That's unique. And yet God, who can lay hands on God. Job's described this whole chapter. No man can really summon God. So where are we going to find a perfect man and God in one? And of course, the answer is our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Paul says there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And what's the result? The mediator is crushed under the wrath of the Father, Isaiah 53. And the sinner, the rod is removed from him. All those false hopes are gone. Christ answers every accusation. Colossians 1. 
He has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, above accusation. Next week, you're going to be studying the justice and the wrath of God. And you're going to have to wrestle with these questions again. Here's the holiness of God. Here's the justice and the wrath of that holy God. And here's man with this sin problem. I have eight false hopes for being in the right with God. But I have one true hope. Do not settle for anything less than Job's mediator. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have through the work of your Son, given us someone who can lay hands on you and us and bring peace. God, we thank you that the peace he's provided is in complete harmony with your justice and your holiness, that he has satisfied all the law required. He has suffered all the penalty. And therefore, you are exalted and your law is lifted up. And yet the sinner that comes to you through him is rescued. Give us grateful hearts, God. And we pray that you would never let us stop being amazed at grace. In Christ's name, amen. In a sense, the holiness of God is his distinctive characteristic or attribute. It literally means that he is different, that he is separate from all other beings. So when we speak of the holiness of God, we are really talking about who God is. But the holiness of God also means his moral purity, his perfection, his sinlessness. And I think in those two respects, we are to understand the holiness of God. The aspect of his separation, that he is high and lifted up, um, I think just overwhelms our hearts in a good way, that our God is not on our level. He, he is not like us, that uh, we are worshiping one who is infinitely beyond us, and it fills us with wonder and amazement and astonishment. God's Holiness is such that he would rather see sin die than his son live. This holiness of God is at once the most attractive thing about him, properly understood, and the most fearful thing concerning him. I, I really don't know that we know God as holy in the way that we should. And there may be a sense in which we don't particularly want to. Because once you see the holiness of God, you, you cannot be what you were. My entire life is inseparably connected to my knowledge of God. And so the greater and the higher my knowledge of His holiness, it's just pulling me up in my daily walk with Him, in my worship of Him, in my sense of accountability to Him and everything that I do, I do it as unto the Lord. As I look around at everything, the church, the world, society, my family, everything, and as I see it through the lens of the holiness of God, I now see everything differently.
it's, it's all to do with the, the wonderful way in which the Holy Spirit uh, comes and dwells in the heart of a sinful man, creating new desires, new attitudes, new, de new, new, new concerns, new ambitions, and ultimately enabling us to live new lives in Christ. For me, what has touched my heart the most, the holiness of God is his beauty. And I want to see it more and more. I look forward to heaven when we shall see it in its beauty and glory fully. Well, God's holiness is beautiful inherently, but the beauty of his holiness is terrifying to those who are outside of Christ. For the unbeliever, the holiness of God is a nightmare. And if it's not, it's only because they don't understand the holiness of God. That there is this separation, there is this chasm that separates holy God from sinful man, and that this holy God is angry with the wicked every day. And there is such a, a vast gulf that separates the holiness of God and sinful man that no man can come to God on his own. And neither can he bridge that gap by any of his supposed goodness or his own efforts. But in Christ, this God is reconciled to us, that his, his, his wrath is turned away, that, that the sword of his justice has been hammered into a shield that protects us that the, the very holiness that was before a terror to us has become a delight to us. The strange thing is that the closer we get to this holy God, the more we feel our own sinfulness. And yet that holiness burns away that sin. It changes our perspective on it. It makes us want to be more like him. We cannot understand our sinfulness unless we really see God as the holy God that he is. But when we do, when we realize that, then it is such a blessed relief to shelter beneath the arms of the cross, to shelter beneath the arms of our Lord Jesus Christ, no longer on the cross, but now it's stretched to save us. So the sinless sin-bearer becomes our redeemer, and we are able to hide in him, and take our refuge beneath his cross. It's the only safe place. It's the only place in the universe where sinners can be reconciled to God. God has reconciled himself to us in the cross. We are reconciled to him when we come to him in repentance and faith and trust in the one who died for us and lives for us. When we look at the holiness of God, and then we could agree with the statement that was made at the very beginning that I am the greatest of sinners, and Jesus is the greatest of saviors. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you would call us as your own that you would draw us to your son, Jesus. That you would give us forgiveness of sins. That as we look at your holiness, that apart from Christ, we would have great fear. 
a great expectation of judgment. And yet we have comfort and hope. Father, we thank you for your great love towards us. Father, we thank you that as you continue to sanctify us and make us more like Christ, the more that you draw us near to yourself, the more that we realize how much of a sinner that we truly are and how in need of a Savior we are. Thank you for Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.